0: Welcome to the podcast of the Vine Church in Fullerton, California. For more information, visit Vineoc.com. Good morning, friends. As always, it's, it's wonderful to be with you today, and I hope you're well. Let me share a, a reading with you from St. Paul's letter to the Romans. Now, we know that the Apostle Paul is the author of this letter to the Romans, but it is within these words that we hear the very voice of God speaking to us, and that is why we say, this is the word of the Lord. And from the Gospel according to Matthew chapter 22, when the Pharisees heard that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together, and one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. Teacher? Which commandment in the law is the greatest? He said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the greatest and first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. And this, my friends, is the gospel of the Lord. You know, it's interesting to see how people deal with new information, especially if it comes into conflict with with what they already have come to believe. You know, people generally want their beliefs to remain stable and harmonious, but when beliefs and new experience come into conflict with each other, there can be disharmony. Now, studies have been done showing that that people usually respond to this kind of conflict, something referred to as cognitive dissonance, in one of three ways. They can reject the new information completely and just re-embrace their former beliefs, or they explore the new information and allow some of it to inform and even change some, but not all, of their former beliefs, or... They explore the new information and embrace it fully, totally discarding the old beliefs. Now, you may have recalled experiencing this kind of thing in your life with different responses because to one degree or another, we've all done this. Uh, Now I gotta say, people who want to avoid this kind of disharmony should never ever read the Bible because there's a lot of possible causes for cognitive dissonance going on in there. Jesus' opponents seemed, for the most part, to be stuck in the very first kind of response. They already knew what they knew, and every question they asked of Jesus was designed to trip him up. Not very often did his detractors end up changing their minds. Their minds were already made up and new information would not change them. And Jesus also didn't feel bound to answer their questions the way that they wanted them answered. In our text this morning, the lawyer asks Jesus about one commandment, just one, but Jesus gives him two. And it's an absolutely fascinating answer because it takes something we call the Shema, the the call to Israel in Deuteronomy chapter six to love the Lord their God and then takes it and links it with the prohibition against vengeance against a neighbor that's found in Leviticus chapter 19, a a command that replaces vengeance and grudge holding with love. And and by, by bringing those two commandments together, Jesus shows that love for the neighbor doesn't come out of grudging, teeth-greeting, self-discipline. Rather, it flows out of love for God that involves the entirety of a person. You know, in recent years, there have been calls in our society for increased levels of tolerance. And I would say rightfully so. As, as divided and angry as our culture has become, tolerance is a good alternative to hatred and discord and violence. However, for we who follow Jesus, tolerance is really an insufficient response to others. Yes, tolerance allows a person to give others space for their views and their opinions and even their lifestyles, but but tolerance also does not require a person to care about others. Tolerance actually allows for complete indifference. So see, I can tolerate a person, but it doesn't mean that I have to like them. It doesn't mean I have to care about the person. So yes, tolerance is a firewall against hatred, true. But it can also be a firewall against love. You know, I'm all for increased tolerance in our society, but for we who claim that Jesus is Lord, Love is to be our response to others. And it is a love that flows from our entire selves being given to God. Now, Jesus describes that entirety of the self as as heart, soul, and mind. And if you look over at Luke's gospel, where he cites the same episode, he throws in strength as well, which is appropriate. Now, if you think about it, the heart is the is the center of a person's physical self now even the ancients understood that without a heart the body would just up and die uh, now the soul the soul is the kind of essence of the personal self it's the vital life force of a person it is animated and sustained by the very breath of God the soul is the is the seat of one's affections and feelings even uh, and it's the part of us that isn't dissolved. At death, it remains. And then there's the mind, the activity of that organ that we call the brain, the thinking part of us that that never ever seems to rest, especially at three o'clock in the morning when we can't stop thinking about all the things that we have to do or all of the things that we can't control. Not that I've ever done that. Well. The Christian philosopher James K.A. Smith reminds his readers that that we humans are not just brains on a stick, he says. He says we're not formed and shaped simply by what we think. We are formed and shaped by by the habits and the practices, the, the liturgies, if you will, that orient us around all of the things that we love or... To put it another way, as Smith does, we are what we worship. A number of years ago, I used to take my graduate students to a local mall for a field trip. No matter where I taught, there was always a mall nearby somewhere. And their assignment was simply to walk around, to observe, and to try to answer these questions. What are the promises that are being made here? And what is the audience for these promises? And most importantly, how does the reality of the Kingdom of God come to bear on these promises? In other words, how do the values and the practices of God's Kingdom relate to what you see in this mall that we're visiting? It was really kind of an exercise in what we call cultural analysis or cultural exegesis. We have to call it that because we were in seminary, right? Well. Let's come back to the mall here and use it as an example, Uh, Smith does this as well. Think about how a mall forms and shapes people who go there all the time, go there on a regular basis. There are all kinds of sights and sounds and smells even if you get near the food court. And certainly there are, are promises being made, even if only by implication. And you know what these promises are buy this shirt or this blouse or those shoes, and and you will look better, you will feel better, and maybe you'll even save 20% during the sale. Now, a steady diet of mall experiences creates habits and practices that are very formative and, and help to ground people in the love of consumerism, even if that love is unconscious. Now, there are so many ways that people are formed by practices that are oriented toward things that they they value, things that they love, and so the question for us today is, given all the forces that scream for our devotion, how do we really love the Lord our God with all our heart, our soul, our mind, our strength, and also love our neighbor as ourselves? in our time and place in history, is it even possible? Was Jesus just setting the bar so high that that no one could ever jump over it? And can we be exempted from all of this because it's an election year? Years ago in the church where I was a pastor, I, I had a conversation with someone who was objecting to my suggestion that parents really needed to take an active role in the spiritual nurture of their children. And the person demanded all the demands of life that resulted in unavoidable busyness and then informed me that it was the church's job to provide that nurture. Now, I try to act like a nice person, but truth be told, sometimes I can be just downright mean. Now, I knew this person brought the family to the church twice a month at the most, so I asked How many hours their children spent in school each week? How many hours playing with friends, watching TV, doing sports, on and on. Well, as you can well imagine, especially if you have kids of your own, it was a whole lot of hours. And then I did some quick math, and I showed that their children received the rough equivalent of 30 minutes a week, at most, of ministry through the church. And I asked how the person believed that such nurture would adequately compete with the other demands in their children's lives. Well, the conversation didn't end well. I can be such a jerk. Well, at the same time, I understood some of this person's concerns. There are a lot of demands on our lives, including on the lives of our children. But we still have to ask what are the forces what are the patterns that have the greatest power to form and shape us in how we think how we live and how we worship well in romans chapter 12 the apostle paul has given us some direction on this topic and that is to offer our bodies as a living sacrifice holy and pleasing to god that's what he says and he claims that the offering to God of our full selves is true and proper worship. Now, some Bible translations say reasonable worship or even spiritual worship. All of those are acceptable translations of the Greek text. Now, for the first 11 chapters of his letter to the Romans, Paul has been arguing for ways that Jewish and Gentile Christians can learn to consider themselves to be one people, one family of faith. and that. It just isn't going to happen if they keep on dividing themselves into different camps and relying on their former ways of thinking about how God accepts and loves people. And now he calls his readers to be transformed by the renewing of their minds. But wait just a minute. So is, is Paul promoting the whole brains on a stick idea? Not at all. Paul chooses a very unique Greek word that that we translate as mind. It is a word that's about intellect, but but it also includes feeling and intuitive processing and insight and and reason. It even talks about moral attitude. It's, It's actually a very holistic word, and it suggests that the kind of transformation Paul's talking about impacts the entire human self. Well this renewal of the mind doesn't happen magically doesn't happen just through some kind of rigid self-discipline it emerges out of the offering of ourselves fully to god in true and proper worship spiritual worship it is a work of god's spirit it is the work of our of the holy spirit in our lives as we submit ourselves to him this renewal also results in a contrast to the patterns of this world. Now, this isn't to somehow posture Christians against the world, but rather to orient them toward God through worship practices and ways of thinking that are different than the patterns or the forces that are all around us. I've been uh, intrigued for a long time about the dynamics of this thing that we call a Worship, service. Now, service is a word that is often used to describe a formal religious gathering, but the word should actually be describing an activity of direction, a word that doesn't speak of how, let's say, customers are being served or or how religious requirements are being checked off one at a time, but one that speaks of our service to God. Worship is a service when we are serving God. When we sing together, we call it worship because we offer our words to God as prayers of praise and thanksgiving and adoration. We're not just quoting abstract anthems about God. In intimate relationship with him, we are directing our songs to God, confident that he hears and he responds to us. Our singing is an active form of worship, and it shapes us as it involves our minds, our souls, our emotions, and even our bodies. When we attend to scripture through hearing or reading or, or listening to a sermon, we call it worship because we are attentive to the voice of God's spirit, as he speaks to us through our texts and as our lives are formed by those words. And when we confess our sins together, we are engaging in an act of truth-telling, submitting ourselves to the gracious forgiveness of the God who knows us better than we can possibly know ourselves. And when we come to partake in communion, what we also call the Lord's Supper or the Eucharist, we, we come not out of religious obligation, but rather at the summons of Jesus to come and dine, a summons that orients us toward him and his presence among us by the Holy Spirit. So, worship shapes us, and it does so in a number of ways. In our physical engagement in what we call the the liturgy, the liturgy of worship, We train our bodies to respond to the presence of God's Spirit. Our minds are shaped as we speak out the words of corporate prayer and our creeds, giving us an intellectual framework of our faith, not only for us as adults, but for our children as they are heading toward adulthood. And our very souls are shaped for union with the God who is present to us now, and for all eternity. So this is all why what we do when we gather for worship, even as we're doing now virtually, why it is so important. And, And these practices are not limited to our once a week gathering. As we learn ways to be attentive to God through prayer and scripture and reflection and care for others throughout our week, we are allowing God to have primacy in the shaping of our lives. When I think about the the Roman Christians, the people who would have been the very first audience for St. Paul's letter, I think about what various preferences they would have held very closely. You know, the things that they'd already come to believe that needed adjustment or, or even replacement. Now, part of the issue, of course, was that the Jewish Christians in the church wanted to hold very tightly to their former Jewish traditions and then required the Gentiles to conform to those traditions as well. And for their part, the Gentiles just didn't see the point and preferred to avoid most of those requirements. Now, the the people would have had other preferences, surely, like like how the city operated politically. Rome was a complicated place. Uh, When and how poor people were to be helped whether or not Christians should serve in the military, and all kinds of other things that might start arguments when they shared their meals together. And when Paul tells them to be transformed by the renewing of your mind, he he doesn't just leave them there to figure it out for themselves. He points them toward outward actions and inward attitudes, liturgies again, if you will, that not only are formative in the shaping of their shared lives, but are also demonstrations of the character of life in the present reality of the kingdom of God. And here's how Paul advises them. Love must be sincere. Hate what is evil, cling to what is good. Be devoted to one another in love. Honor one another above yourselves. Never be lacking in zeal, but... Be willing to associate with people of low position. Do not be conceited. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Do not take revenge, my friends, but leave room for God's wrath, for it is written, it is mine to avenge. I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, If your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Along with all the other things that have shaped us in our lives, our our families, our friends, the place where we grew up, the kinds of schools that we attended, the, the books and the music and the movies that have influenced us, We also have to add in the political and social forces that scream for our attention and our allegiance. We who follow Jesus will certainly have views and opinions about these kinds of things. And we certainly ought to be attentive to what's going on in our world, not only for our own sakes, but for the sake of others. But if those forces become dominant, yes, even our political preferences, then the transformation of our minds will be a function of things other than the Spirit of God. I started out today by talking about how people receive new information that conflicts with their current beliefs. How do we we receive words like those of Saint Paul and Jesus? Words that we read this morning, do we just set them aside because they don't seem as relevant or as socially pertinent to what we've already come to believe? Or or do we sort of cherry pick from them and, and then just add them a little bit into our current belief system, spice it up just a bit? Now, we can do either one of those things, but we dare not call it transformation. The renewing of our minds requires us to embrace an entirely new way of life. Life in the alternate reality of the kingdom of God, where we experience and where we demonstrate God's rule and reign and the lordship of Christ. And I believe that there's an incredible freedom in that new way of life. And I think you probably do too. It's a freedom to be for God and for others, a a freedom from the voices that order us who to label as our enemy, what to withhold, and what to give, what to do to find meaning and purpose in life, and what it takes to be truly happy. Most of those orders and promises are empty. The kingdom of God comes to bear on those things by summoning us into a new life that transforms us into a new kind of people. The kind of people who demonstrate to the world around us that the kingdom of God truly has come, that Jesus is Lord.